Chapter 16 of Katrina by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Wayne Cook. Chapter 16 The Missing Witness. On the seventeenth, the day I was trysted with the writer, I had much rebellion against fate. The thought of him waiting in the king's arms, and of what he would think, and what he would say when next we met, tormented and oppressed me. The truth was unbelievable. So much I had to grant, and it seemed cruel hard that I should be posted as a liar and a coward, and have never consciously omitted what it was possible that I should do. I repeated this form of words with a kind of bitter relish, and re-examined in that light the steps of my behavior. It seemed I had behaved to James Stewart as a brother might. All the past was a picture that I could be proud of, and there was only the present to consider. I could not swim the sea, nor yet fly in the air, but there was always Andy. I had done him a service, he liked me, I had a lever there to work on. If it were just for decency, I must try once more with Andy. It was late afternoon. There was no sound in all the bass but the lap and bubble of a very quiet sea. And my four companions were all crept apart, the three MacGregors higher on the rock, and Andy with his Bible to a sunny place among the ruins. There I found him in deep sleep and, as soon as he was awake, appealed to him with some fervor of manner and good show of argument. "'If uh, I thought it was to do good to ye, Shaws,' said he, staring at me over his spectacles. "'It's to save another,' said I, "'and to redeem my word. What would be more good than that? Do ye not mind the scripture, Andy, and you with the book upon your lap?' What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world? Aye, said he, that's grand for you, but where do I come in? I have my word to redeem the same's yourself. And what are ye asking me to do, but just to sell it ye for siller? Andy, have I named the name of siller? cried I. Oh, the name's nothing, said he. The thing is there, whatever. It just comes to this. If I am to service ye in the way that you propose, I'll lose my livelihood. Then it's clear you'll have to make it up to me and a pick a mar, for you end credit like. And what's that but just a bribe? Even I were certain of the bribe, but by uh, that I can learn it's far fray that and if you were to hang where would i be nay the thing's no possible and just away with ye like a bonny lad and let andy read his chapter i remember i was at the bottom of a good deal gratified with this result and the next humour i fell into was one i had near said of gratitude to preston grange who had saved me in this violent, illegal manner out of the midst of my dangers, temptations, and perplexities. But this was both too flimsy and too cowardly to last me long, 
and the remembrance of James began to succeed to the possession of my spirits. The twenty-first, the day set for the trial, I passed in such misery of mind as I can scarce recall to have endured, save perhaps upon Isle Errand only. Much of the time I lay on a brayside betwixt sleep and waking, my body motionless, my mind full of violent thoughts. Sometimes I slept, indeed, but the courthouse of Inverary and the prisoner glancing on all sides to find his missing witness followed me in slumber, and I would wake again with a start to darkness of spirit and distress of body. I thought Andy seemed to observe me, but I paid him little heed. Verily my bread was bitter to me, and my days a burden. Early the next morning, Friday the 22nd, a boat came with provisions, and Andy placed a packet in my hand. The cover was without address, but sealed with a government seal. It enclosed two notes. Mr. Balfour could now see for himself it is too late to meddle. His conduct will be observed and his discretion rewarded. So ran the first, which seemed to be laboriously writ with the left hand. There was certainly nothing in these expressions to compromise the writer, even if that person could be found. The seal, which formidably served instead of signature, was affixed to a separate sheet on which there was no scratch of writing and I had to confess that, so far, my adversaries knew what they were doing, and to digest as well as I was able the threat that peeped under the promise. But the second enclosure was by far the most surprising. It was in a lady's hand of writ. Master David Balfour is informed a friend was sparing for him, and her eyes were of the grey, it ran and seemed so extraordinary a piece to come to my hands at such a moment and under such cover of government seal that I stood stupid. Katrina's gray eyes shone in my remembrance. I thought with a bound of pleasure, she must be the friend. But who should the writer be to have her billet thus enclosed with Preston Granges? And of all wonders, why was it thought needful to give me this pleasing but most inconsequent intelligence upon the bass? For the writer, I could hit upon none possible except Miss Grant. Her family, I remembered, had remarked on Katrina's eyes, and even named her for their color, and she herself had been much in the habit to address me with a broad pronunciation, by way of a sniff, I supposed, at my rusticity no doubt besides, but she lived in the same house as this letter came from, so there remained but one step to be accounted for, and that was how Preston Grange should have permitted her at all in an affair so secret, or let her daft-like billet go in the same cover with this own. But here I had a glimmering, for, first of all, there was something rather alarming about the young lady, and Papa might be more under her domination than I knew. And second, there was the man's continual policy to be remembered, how his conduct had been continually mingled with caresses, and he had scarce ever, in the midst of so much contention, laid aside a mask of friendship. He must conceive that my imprisonment 
had incensed me. Perhaps this little jesting, friendly message was intended to disarm my rancor? I will be honest. I think it did. I felt a sudden warmth toward that beautiful Miss Grant, that she should stoop to so much interest in my affairs. The summoning up of Katrina moved me of itself to milder and more cowardly counsels. If the advocate knew of her in our acquaintance, if I should please him by some of that discretion at which his letter pointed, to what might not this lead? In vain is the net prepared in sight of any fowl, the scripture says. Well, fowls must be wiser than folk, for I thought I perceived the policy, and yet fell in with it. I was in this frame, my heart beating, the gray eyes plain before me like two stars, when Andy broke in upon my musing. I see ye has got good news, said he. I found him looking curiously in my face. With that there came before me like a vision of James Stewart in the court of Inverary, and my mind turned at once like a door upon its hinges. Trials, I reflected, sometimes draw out longer than is looked for. Even if I came to Inverary just too late, something might yet be attempted in the interests of James, and in those of my own character the best would be accomplished. In a moment, it seemed, without thought, I had a plan devised. Andy, said I, is it still to be tomorrow? He told me nothing was changed. Was anything said about the hour? I asked. He told me it was to be two o'clock afternoon. And about the place? I pursued. What in place? says Andy. The place I am to be landed out, said I. He owned there was nothing as to that. Very well, then, I said. This shall be mine to arrange. The wind is in the east. My road lies westward. Keep your boat. I, I hire it. Let us work up the fourth all day, and land me at two o'clock tomorrow at the westmost we can have reached. Ye daft gallant, he cried. You would try for Inverary, after all. Just that, Andy, says I. Well, you're ill to beat, says he. And I was kind of sorry for ye a day yesterday, he added. You see, I was never entirely sure till then which way of it ye really wanted. Here was a spur to a lame horse. A word in your ear, Andy, said I. This plan of mine has another advantage yet. We can leave these highlandmen behind us on the rock, and one of your boats from the Castleton can bring them off to-morrow. Jan Neal has a queer eye when he regards you. Maybe if I was once out of the gate, there might be knives again. These red shanks are uncou grudgeful. And if there should come to be any question, here is your excuse. Our lives were in danger by these savages. Being unanswerable for my safety, you chose the part to bring me from their neighborhood and detain me the rest of the time on board your boat. And do you know, Andy, says I with a smile, I think it was very wisely chosen. The truth is, I have no good for Neil, 
says Andy. Nor he for me, I'm thinking. And I would like ill to come to my hands with a man. Tam Anstra will make a better hand of it with the cattle only way. For his man Anster came from Fife, where the Gaelic is still spoken. Aye, aye, says Andy. Tam can deal with them the best. And troth, the more I think of it, the less I see we would be required. The place, eh, figs, they had forgot the place. Eh, Shaws, you're a langhide child when ye like. For be that I'm owing ye my life, he added with more solemnity and offered me his hand upon the bargain. Whereupon, with scarce more words, we stepped suddenly on board the boat, cast off, and set the lug. The Grigara were then busy upon breakfast, for the cookery was their usual part. But one of them, stepping to the battlements, our flight was observed before we were twenty fathoms from the rock, and the three of them ran about the ruins and the landing-shelf for all the world like ants about a broken nest, hailing and crying on us to return. We were still in both the lee and the shadow of the rock, which last lay broad upon the waters, but presently came forth in almost the same moment into the wind and sunshine. The sail filled and the boat heeled to the gunwale, and we swept immediately beyond sound of the men's voices. To what terrors they endured upon the rock, where they were now deserted without the countenance of any civilized person, or so much as the protection of a Bible, no limit can be set. Nor had they any brandy left to be their consolation. For even in the haste and secrecy of our departure, Andy had managed to remove it. It was our first care to set Anster ashore in a cove by the Glentithy rocks, so that the deliverance of our maroons might be duly seen to the next day. Thence we kept away up first. The breeze, which was then so spirited, swiftly declined, but never wholly failed us. All day we kept moving, though often not much more, and it was after dark ere we were up with the Queen's Ferry. To keep the letter of Annie's engagement, or what was left of it, I must remain on board, but I thought no harm to communicate with the shore in writing. On Preston Grange's cover, where the government seal must have a good deal surprised my correspondent, I writ, by the boat's lantern, a few necessary words, aboard and Andy carried them to Rankin-Keller. In about an hour he came again with a purse of money and the assurance that a good horse should be standing saddled for me by two to-morrow at Clackmannan Pool. This done, and the boat riding by her stone anchor, we lay down to sleep under the sail. We were in the pool the next day long ere two, and there was nothing left for me but to sit and wait. I felt little clarity upon my errand. I would have been glad of any passable excuse to lay it down, but none being to be found. My uneasiness was no less great than if I had been running to some desired pleasure. But shortly after one, the horse was at the waterside, and I could see a man walking it to and fro till I should land, which vastly swelled my impatience. Andy ran the moment of my liberation very fine, showing himself a man of his bare word, 
but scarce serving his employers with a heaped measure, and by about fifty seconds after two I was in the saddle and on the full stretch for Stirling. In a little more than an hour I had passed that town and was already mounting Allen Waterside, when the weather broke in a small tempest. The rain blinded me, the wind had nearly beat me from the saddle, and the first darkness of the night surprised me in a wilderness still some way east of Bullwither. Not very sure of my direction, and mounted on a horse that began already to be weary. In the press of my hurry, and to be spared the delay and annoyance of a guide, I had followed, so far as it were possible for any horseman, the line of my journey with Alan. This I did with open eyes, foreseeing a great risk in it, which the tempest had now brought to a reality. The last that I knew of where I was, I think it must have been about Yamvar, the hour perhaps six at night. I must still think it great good fortune that I got about eleven to my destination, the house of Duncan Dew, where I had wandered in the interval, perhaps the horse could tell. I know we were twice down and once over the saddle, and for a moment carried away in a roaring burn. Steed and rider were bemired up to the eyes. From Duncan I had news of the trial. It was followed in all these highland regions with religious interest. News of it spread from Inverary as swift as men could travel. And I was rejoiced to learn that, up to a late hour that Saturday, it was not yet concluded, and all men began to suppose it must spread over the Monday. Under the spur of this intelligence, I would not sit to eat, but Duncan, having agreed to be my guide, took the road again on foot, with a piece in my hand and munching as I went. Duncan brought with him a flask of Usenbah and a hand-lantern, which last enlightened us just so long as we could find houses where to rekindle it. For the thing leaked outrageously and blew out with every gust. The more part of the night we walked blindfolded among sheets of rain, and day found us aimless on the mountains. Hard by we struck a hut on a burnside, where we got a bite and a direction, and a little before the end of the sermon came to the cook doors of Inverary. The rain had somewhat washed the upper parts of me, but I was still bogged as high as to the knees. I streamed water. I was so weary I could hardly limp, and my face was like a ghost's. I stood certainly more in need of a change of raiment and a bed to lie on than of all the benefits in Christianity. For all which, being persuaded the chief point for me was to make myself immediately public, I set the door of the church with my dirty Duncan at my tails, and finding a vacant place, sat down. Certainly, my brethren, and in parentheses, the law itself must be regarded as a means of grace, the minister was saying in the voice of one delighting to pursue an argument. The sermon was in English on account of the Aziz. The judges were present with their armed attendants, and the halberts glittered in a corner by the door, and the seats were thronged beyond custom with the array of lawyers. The text was in Romans 5th and 13th, the minister a skilled hand, and the whole of that able churchful, from Argyle and my lord's Elches 
and Kilcarran down to the Halberton men that came in their attendance, was sunk with gathered brows and a profound critical attention. The minister himself and a sprinkling of those about the door observed our entrance at the moment and immediately forgot the same. The rest either did not hear or would not hear or would not be heard, and I sat amongst my friends and enemies unremarked. The first that I singled out was Preston Grange. He sat well forward like an eager horseman in the saddle, his lips moving with relish, his eyes glued on the minister. The doctrine was clearly to his mind. Charles Stuart, on the other hand, was half asleep, and looked harassed and pale. As for Simon Fraser, he appeared like a blot, and almost a scandal, in the midst of that attentive congregation, digging his hands in his pockets, shifting his legs, clearing his throat, and rolling up his bald eyebrows, and shooting out his eyes to right and left, now with a yawn, now with a secret smile. At times, too, he would take the Bible in front of him, run it through, seem to read a bit, run it through again, and stop and yawn prodigiously, the whole as if for exercise. In the course of this restlessness, his eyes alighted on myself. He sat a second, stupefied, then tore a half-leaf out of the Bible, scrawled upon it with a pencil, and passed it with a whispered word to his next neighbor. The note came to Preston Grange, who gave me but the one look. Thence it voyaged to the hands of Mr. Erskine, thence again to Argyle, where he sat between the other two lords of session, and his grace turned and fixed me with an arrogant eye. The last of those interested in my presence was Charlie Stewart, and he too began to pencil and hand about dispatches, none of which I was able to trace to their destination in the crowd. But the passage of these notes had aroused notice. All who were in the secret, or supposed themselves to be so, were whispering information, the rest questions, and the minister himself seemed quite discountenanced by the flutter in the church and sudden stir and whispering. His voice changed, he plainly faltered, nor did he again recover the easy conviction and full tones of his delivery. It would be a puzzle to him till his dying day, why a sermon that had gone with triumph through four parts should thus miscarry in the fifth. As for me, I continued to sit there, very wet and weary, and a good deal anxious as to what should happen next, but greatly exulting in my success. End of chapter 16